Hey, Brock, how are you? Doing well, how are you? Pretty, pretty good. Happy to be home for a while. And uh, you are, you were in L.A. or you are still there? I'm going to L.A. Uh, Monday, M Monday through Saturday. So, yeah, I'll be there next week. Oh, very cool. You're all, you're all set for uh, getting your, any, any stuff you're working on now to have while you're gone? Yeah, it's, it should should have a lot of good content coming out of this trip. Um, hopefully, some videos with like Andy from Primer Magazine and Baron from Effortless Gent and a bunch of other guys uh, who are also starting to focus on YouTube. So, yeah, stay tuned. It pro you know probably won't actually have that content published for a month from now, but uh, it should be good. Yeah, and by the time people hear this, it'll probably be out. That's true. That's true. We so, get how about you? So you've been You've been traveling. Actually, you know what? I saw, I saw some of your videos from the road, and your your video on uh, the Apple uh, AirPods, I think, convinced me to get a pair. Yeah, I didn't know if that would be controversial because tech can be very uh, opinionated, as we talked about with watches last week. But uh, for me, like, I love the earpods that come with the phone. They fit my ears really well, and I like them. Uh, and to have them Bluetooth and have them entirely wireless is so. Uh, so pleasing um just like it's such a first world thing where not having a cable to get tied like I, I wear them around the house all the time when i'm doing any uh like cleaning around the house and it gets caught on doors sometimes you know snake it through your shirt and uh, just the functionality from a bluetooth perspective as well because i've had other bluetooth earbuds and um i used to i was i used to get made fun of in school because i would have a, a bluetooth band they were on ear headphones by jaybird and I wore them everywhere, and people would say that I looked like a total uh, idiot wearing them because not connected to anything, and, and they were they were like neon orange. And so, uh, even just from a Bluetooth functionality, they're they're very strong. And I like that you can wear one or the other. But you now you can you can see the video, or, or you saw the video, so you know that I can gush about them. But yeah, they are they're a really cool piece of tech. Yeah, yeah, I've I've been looking into getting Bluetooth uh, headphones because I. Same same deal. Like I wear the earbuds all the time, and like I listen to podcasts when I'm making breakfast and cleaning, and it it's always getting caught on something. You know, even running is running with them is kind of a pain. They fit in my ears really nicely, but you know, you got you got to put them through your shirt and wear an armband, and it's just, the whole thing is just. And so it's funny when the when the earpods uh, or AirPods first came out, and everybody was complaining about the way they looked and stuff. I was like. Are you, are you guys kidding me? Like this is like the best thing that's happened, you know, to to earphones for a while because I don't think anybody likes the cord, you know. Yeah, it's it's the future, especially. Um, I'll always remember in, in it was a Ryan Reynolds movie called Definitely Maybe from like 2007. In the very first scene, it's like panning shots of the city in New York, and the first shot of him, he's got these two independent wireless headphones that he's listening to music on, and they were like, it blew my mind watching that, and I've been waiting for something like that for a while. I know that like, there's a Kickstarter last year for the Broggy Dash headphones, and there's some, there's been some others out there, but to have like a big hitter in the technology space to really bring this technology uh, forward is it's it, it's working out well and and battery as well. I mean I've I've done uh, two hour long runs and battery hasn't been an issue on those, so uh, it's nice to drop them in the case and they're charged in fifteen minutes. So glad I was able to uh, convince you. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was like, I kind of want to hold out until they come out with the matte black ones, but because I have I have the uh, matte black iPhone 7. Um, but and I know there's the one that company color where they can color them for you, but that seems a little a little excessive, <laughs> you know, to pay extra for that. But uh, but yeah, and I I saw your other recent video about the I guess your top three clothing box um, subscriptions because I guess you pretty much tried them all, uh, which was interesting because I haven't tried any of the three that you recommended. So I, I'm definitely going to give some of those a shot too. Have you used any of them, any of the subscriptions? Yeah, I did a pretty thorough review of Trunk Club, um, and then I've also worked with Men's Style Lab. Uh, but the, and I'd say out of those two, I, I preferred Men's Style Lab, mostly because of the price point. But my main problem, like with Trunk Club, for example, was the experience was nice, but this stuff is pretty high-end, and for me, I pretty much need to get everything altered, so I have to factor in that cost. So I don't really want to pay $100, you know, $100 for a shirt and then another twenty dollars to get the sleeve shortened when I can get a made-to-measure shirt for you know eighty bucks. I know that's. I think that's one of the things I'm struggling with. I've been. I've. I've also purchased pretty much every dress shirt um, company that's out on the internet, and I'm. I'm trying to work on a similar roundup as I did with those subscriptions, but it's becoming more and more difficult to recommend an off-the-rack shirt company when the prices are so close for made-to-measure. Uh, and you get just a better fit, and the quality is basically the same as you would with an off-the-rack shirt. And um, I, that's why I haven't – I was hoping to get it out in January, and then I was hoping to get it out in February. But I can give recommendations for off-the-rack, but then there's this whole other world to really jump into with made-to-measure. And, and especially for yourself and myself, uh, getting the fit is so is so critical to having something look really good. Yeah, I think for, like, pursuits, it still makes sense to – to at least first try to shop off the rack, and then if that really doesn't work out, um, to go to go custom, you know. But for dress shirts, I think at this point, I mean, unless you just have an off the rack build and you found a brand that really works, for me, it's all of my dress shirts are made to measure, and by dress shirt I just mean a button up that gets tucked in, you know. Um, even casual button ups I have some made to measure now, and I don't know, it just for me, it just makes sense. You know, I think suits are are much harder to get right. In terms of the, the self measurement and, and all that, so those are a little more complicated. But for dress shirts, I pretty much always recommend trying the made to measure route um, and knowing that it's it might not work out the first time. You know, it takes some work to get it right. Yeah. What are what are the three that you typically try to go to for the made to or for the yeah for the made to measure dress shirts? Uh, I've had good luck with uh, let's see, um, blank label. Was the first one that I ever tried out and had a had a really good experience with them. Actually, um, Modern Tailor is probably my recommendation for like a very affordable one. Um, and I've I've had a really good fit with them. Um, geez, I've, I've tried so many. Um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of smaller ones that uh, that I you know have really nice like high quality shirts that fit well. The thing is, it's not that hard to get the fit right with a, with just a shirt. So I would say find one that has the fabrics you like and the interface because they all have different, um, you know, like web services and interfaces. Like, for example, there's one called Tailor Store, and they have by far the best shirt customizer interface on their website that I've ever seen. It's like every little detail uh, is rendered right in front of you in real time. So if you change, like, the uh, contrast button thread, it'll render that 
so you can see exactly what it's going to look like. So, you know, if that's if that's important, then I would say go with them. Yeah, that's what uh, looking at made to measure suits as well. That's that's kind of been where I'm headed towards on a recommendation is. You can get the fit on any of the companies, but what it comes down to is do, does the company have the material you're looking for? Does it have the, the type of wool and does it have the uh, color and styling that you're looking for? Because they're pretty much for the most part, they'll all have navy and they'll have gray. But if you want a gray linen, uh, if you want something a little bit more uh, with a little more flair, do they do they have that type of thing? Because the, uh, the holy grail is to get a company that has your measurements and then you just keep ordering more stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, th and there's also, I'd say, something else to consider is different companies offer different levels of customization. So like some companies, they might offer three or four different collar styles. Other companies might let you customize the collar completely, like down to the shape and the point length and all of that. So like for me, if like I prefer a shorter collar length, uh, collar point length, and you know I don't really like spread collars that much. So if a company doesn't offer a collar I like, I'd probably just go with another company. And also a lot of these places, if you ask, they'll do something that's like not on the menu, you know, but you have to reach out to customer service and say, hey, you know, can you change the sleeve cuffs to two and a half inches instead of three inches or something? And they'll say, yeah, we could do that, but it might not be available on the website, you know? Yeah. I don't know if this is something you put in your, uh, in your regular style guide, but is there collar types that you usually recommend for people of your build? Well, I, I think the the shape depends more on like your your face and your neck and um, you know your I guess your width. Um, but yeah, the point length I, I recommend. Like I, I just I like uh, kind of like a classic like medium spread or point collar and. Uh, I always go with a shorter point length because I think that a lot of the times if you're a smaller guy and you have a really big long collar, it, it kind of dwarfs your uh, like your neck and your head a little bit. So I always try to shorten that the actual collar point length a little bit. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and, and uh, I know just a few weeks ago there was a report on Indochino going into some mall stores, and I think that's that kind of shift from online only company to kind of jump into the retail space. You saw that with like Bonobos or, or Warby Parker also opens those things up. And so I know they're going into Bloomingdale's, I think is their main channel that they're uh, starting out in. So, I mean, that, that's an interesting move in itself. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's a, that's a, a good thing overall for, for men, but I think the, the thing to watch out for, and I'm sure they're doing this as intentionally as they can, but the thing with something like uh, Indochino is it really, it, it's not about the brand, it's about the individual stylist that you're working with, you know, and, and how they understand measurements and how much practice they've had and, you know, how they've been trained. So if Indochino, say, you know, five years from now, Indochino is in 50 different Bloomingdale's, it's not going to be the same experience going to one versus another. Uh, because it all comes down to that person who's measuring you, you know. Um, so you can have, that's why you have people that have awesome experiences with Indochino and people who have terrible experiences, because it all comes down to the person who's taking the measurements. Yeah, that's, I, that, that came to some of my main criticism of, I did a comparison between the Black Tux and Men's Warehouse, and like the idea of Men's Warehouse is so, so good, right? It's a 
store full of experts who know, know suiting, they know tailoring, and they can really give you good recommendations. But instead, it turns into a big store full of uh, teenagers that are there after high school. And then you've got you know the managers in the back, and they've worked there for a while. But you don't get that expertise that you would get, especially if you went to just like a one-man shop where uh, he's a tailor and that's all he does. And so, yeah, that, that's a really good point is trying to have that experience across each of the different stores. Yeah, yeah, and I I think every made to measure company will you know will experience that. I mean, even a place like Nordstrom, you know, Nordstrom has in-house tailors, and you know for the most part they're good. But just because it's Nordstrom doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a good tailor. You know, you have to kind of do your homework, and um, like I would say, like if you're going to you know go to any new tailor, you know, test them out with something easy first. So like if you're going to go to Indochino for the first time. No matter if you go to one of their stores or a mall store or, or online, start with something easy like a shirt, you know, and then move on to more complicated stuff like the suit. But I don't know, man. I, you know, Indochino and malls. I, I think they're, I think they're going to get a lot of new customers like that. But I think they also have to um, compete with places like Suit Supply, you know, who are able to offer a pretty good fit off the rack, which is, I think, generally. Um, a little better for most guys. You know, it's just less complicated and it's faster. And uh, you know, st still, even though made to measure is so big, the vast majority of guys, you know, haven't gotten a made to measure suit and probably won't. I know. I'm still shocked that people still go to places like Macy's and Bloomingdale's. <laughs> well, I think I think I'm on the bleeding edge. There's the bell curve, right, of adoption for technologies, or you can apply it to almost anything. And I think I'm more. I'm more on the bleeding edge of, you know, I haven't really shopped in a mall for two years, realistically. I'm mostly online, but uh, that'll take a long time to really catch up with the mainstream. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. I went to the mall the other day um, to get some sneakers. I, I needed a new pair, and I was like, you know, that's, that's one thing that's kind of nice to try on, um, especially if you're trying new brands. And... Uh, Actually had a really a really nice experience sneaker shopping in the mall, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I probably wouldn't buy a suit there at least right now. Hmm. Well, most of those places are. Uh, that's that's kind of my next. I started. Uh, I kind of did a pilot for a, a series that I want to do on my channel where I talked about the the what five four considers their value of their boxes, and so to try and kind of break down the business of retail and the business of these fashion brands. And uh, I mean, it's, it's done well so far, but one of the things that I want to do is to talk about how um, there, there was a retail outlet that just put out, you know, their death watch for 2017 and the brands that will likely not make it through this year. And like J crew is on there, Abercrombie and Fitch is on there and, and a lot of these mall brands are on there and trying to kind of, give some context and explain that because if you talk to, I think if you talk to the average guy and it might be the people that listen to this podcast, they would never think that uh, J crew is going to go anywhere. But in, in all reality, if you look at, if you look at the financials and you look at the trajectory of the business, uh, it looks like they don't have much longer to, uh, to go without some serious, serious changes. They can't really compete with these online startups. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I've heard with, um, with J. Crew, that like their their women's line is a whole different story than their men's line, and because I I can't see I could see J. Crew closing brick and mortar stores, but I can't see 
their their brand going. I mean, it just seems like so many men can uh, get into J. Crew. You know, can get on board with that brand and their aesthetic and their collaborations were awesome. You know, but I don't really meet many women who like love J. Crew and you know look forward to their to shopping there um, in the same way that men like really love it. Yeah. Yeah, because they also have because Madewell is also the J Crew brand, so they have J Crew women, and then they have Madewell, which is a pure women's brand from J Crew. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I don't think it has nearly the, the grasp that does, and it's tough for them to compete against like the Forever Twenty Ones and the Zara's and H and M's. People just aren't willing to pay for for clothes anymore. Yeah, that's true, and it, and it's kind of they're in that weird middle ground too, where it's kind of like. It's more expensive than the uh, the Forever Twenty Ones and Zara's and H and M's and ASOS, but it's not like super like it's still a mall brand, and it's not super high end. You know, something like Taylor Stitch or Gantz like that, you don't really see in the malls. So you kind of sometimes you wonder, and even with the stuff you buy from J Crew, like sometimes you're like okay, this is clearly higher quality than something I could find at H and M. But sometimes you get something and you're like, you know, this this probably isn't any better. Um, so there's kind of like a, I don't know, there's, there's a, the quality isn't really uniform like across their entire inventory. You know, I have a couple things from J. Crew that the zipper breaks or something like that and just stuff that you wouldn't expect from J. Crew. Yeah. Well, brands have to adapt, to adapt and change. Uh, we have Dan Shapiro getting on. He is the founder of Four Laps, which is, uh, if you think about like athletic wear, he's trying to build a brand that is accessible athletic wear. So, you know, not quite as expensive as Nike, but having that same great quality by going direct to the consumer. And uh, we just wanted to get on a, a chat with him and let him kind of talk about how and why he started and kind of give his entrepreneur story. So uh, we'll jump over to the interview right now. So we have uh, Daniel Shapiro on with us. He is the founder of Four Laps. Dan, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Excellent. You're out in New York? I am. Yeah. Snowing. Yeah, we get hit on the East Coast as well. Brock never sees snow anymore, just when he uh, heads back to the East. I think it's going to be like 85 degrees here today. <laughs> yeah. Lucky you. Yeah. I don't know. I don't mind the snow. So, Dan, you have an interesting story on how you started Four Laps and... Uh, but I guess, what what would be where you really started? Like, where'd you grow up, and kind of what what started you on this path towards uh, building your own company? Yeah, sure. So I'm from St. Louis. I born and raised, um, went to college there as well. And as a kid, I was always very interested in consumer behavior and clothing, cars, consumer electronics, all that kind of stuff. And I you know, in my family and amongst friends, I was always the go-to person when someone wanted to buy something, I would research it and come back to them with recommendations, but very much always interested in, in consumer behavior and, and why someone bought one brand over another. So I so I graduated from college and in a really great job market and I went to work for a consulting firm um, my first year out of college and wasn't a very good consultant and had a had a pretty rough year left at the end of the year and I moved to Washington DC without a job and temped for a while and then got a job with a startup. 
And about six months after I started working for the startup, they lost their funding and laid off almost everyone. So that was kind of, uh, that was in 1999, and I, I uh, started interviewing, and I got a job with a great startup in Silicon Valley. I worked for them for, for a little over a year, and then they, they went through... They went through some challenges and laid off some people, and uh, and I was unemployed for like I don't know seven months living in San Francisco. So and um, into a great job market right before the bubble, and then you went to Silicon Valley for the bubble. Yes, basically, yeah. And you know, I, I went I went to work for uh, this really great startup called Elance. It's like an eBay for services. It was funded by Kleiner Perkins. I worked around some really great people. And they went through several rounds of layoffs, and then I, I I got laid off, and I you know I spent some time trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I thought I wanted to do software sales. So I ended up getting a job with another startup that that company did a ton of work for uh, retailers, and so I was calling retailers all the time to talk to them about our software, and I realized that I really was interested in retail. And what's interesting is that I worked in college, I worked at Banana Republic. And I loved selling and I loved the clothing and I loved seeing what was new and what was selling. And, um, but I didn't realize that it could be a career. So I'm at this startup, um, uh, this startup that does a lot of work for retailers. And I realized that I want to start my own apparel company. And I called up a very close family friend whose name was Stanley Tanger, who started Tanger Factory Outlets. And he said, no, 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 you're not going to start your own company. You're going to go work for someone else and get some experience. And he goes, you live in San Francisco, you should go work for The Gap. And so that's what I did. Um, and in 2003, I went to work for The Gap, and I started um, in Old Navy Outlet in allocation, um, knowing that I wanted to get into merchandising. I spent about a year and a half in allocation, and then I got a job working for Gap Brand as an assistant merchant working in denim. So, you're mainly yeah. just choosing like how many units go to a store, right? How many jeans go to this store uh, and X, Y. Yeah, so that's where you started. Yeah, that's where, where I started is basically we worked in these green screens, these very old systems, and we allocated inventory to the stores. And I had adult accessories, which was like seven different departments tons and tons of SKUs. And um, I remember one Christmas, I w it was obviously a super busy time, and we had to punch in all the numbers for the style numbers into this, com into this computer system. And I was so tired at the end of the day, I had typed in so many different numbers that I went to call a friend and I typed a style number into the phone. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was, a, it was actually a, a great learning being an allocation because you got to work with a lot of different functions. So I, I really got to, I got a better sense of what I wanted, but I knew that I wanted to be more product focused and more on the, on the product side of things. So I did a bunch of networking within the company and had a lot of encouragement from a lot of people. And I ended up getting a job in merchandising, working for Gap brand. Um, in denim. And so I worked in men's denim for a couple of years and then an opportunity came up in Old Navy to do kids. Um, and so I went over to Old Navy and I, I did um, pants, shorts, shirts and outerwear in Old Navy kids. And you know, it's interesting, it's the same company, but it's run, all the different uh, divisions are run very differently. And Old Navy was just a very exciting, exciting place to be. What were you doing uh, when you say 
you know, you were working on pants and shorts and for kids. What, what were you doing? Were you like yeah. designing or sourcing or what? Yeah. So merchant merchants at vertical retailers, you're basically managing the business. So you're you're doing a bunch of different things. You're working with the design team and giving them a strategy, a seasonal strategy. So letting them know for whatever season you're working on, you know, this is what worked, this is what didn't work, this is what we should develop into, and this is, you know, this is what our customer doesn't want. You're working with the planning team to figure out how much inventory you need to buy in each one of these styles. You're working with the production team to make sure things get executed. So we would go to Hong Kong, we went on, you know, trips to to, to do costing with the production team. You're working with the marketing team on placement and signage. So you're kind of general manager of a particular business, and you're working with all of these different teams and functions to help execute the business and you know and make mu- as much money for the company as possible. Okay. So, so I did boys for a couple of years, and then I, I had the opportunity to move to um, men's denim pants and shorts. And, you know, I inherited a business that was really, really challenging. It was, you know, it was just challenging on, on a number of levels. So um, I really worked with the design team. They had just kind of created this whole new line of denim. And when I saw it, it, had, it was already, you know, done. And I saw it and I thought, oh, no, this is not going to be good. Um, like, it's not going to sell. And, and I, I kind of voiced that concern and everyone was like, well, it's done. So we're just going to have to see what happens. And it, lo and behold, it hit, and it was it was really bad. So we had to kind of, you know, rework things. And, you know, when you're working in a big company with a lot of stores, it takes a while. So if things don't aren't good, you have to kind of – it takes you a while to kind of get out of that inventory and get into the right stuff. So, I, 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 you know, I was there, and I, I worked on that. And at that point, I had been in the company for eight and a half years, and I thought, you know, there's probably – another way of looking at, at the business and I know one way and that's the gap way. And, you know, a lot of the best merchants in the business came out of the gap, but I um, knew a bunch of people that were going to American Eagle and um, I interviewed there and I, I, I left old Navy and San Francisco in 2009 and went to work for American Eagle. I moved to Pittsburgh. It was a, it was a huge life change for me and it was a hard environment. American Eagle was very, very product focused, and the pace was a lot quicker than what I was used to. And there's a lot of innovation going on there and creativity. And so, you know, the first year was was tough. Um, I worked in men's. I, I ran the pants and shorts businesses, which were um, actually the pants business wasn't wasn't a big business, but shorts was a huge business for the company. And you know, while I was there, I started to realize, well. You know, we sell denim all year round, but we don't we don't have we don't sell pants. We we have them for six months. And I worked with my team, and we we developed a, a year round pant strategy, and we we tripled the business in like two years. You know, at that point, I had I'd only worked in men's and and, and boys, and women's was one of those areas that I was always afraid to work in because it it seemed so foreign to me. But the opportunity came up to work in uh, women's denim, and so I moved to the women's denim at, at American Eagle. I just wanted to get back you, on pants. You're saying uh, like chino strategy, like a year-round uh, taking the, yeah. 
shorts and expanding upon not just denim. Yes. Yeah, so American Eagle had one pant and they used to bring it in for six months and then they would get rid of it and they would bring, they would do that every year. And the productivity of that pant was unbelievable. I mean, it sold a ton and it was just two, two colors of one pant. Well, we're selling all the denim and all these different fits and washes. And, you know, I knew that, that the customer, they had to be going somewhere for their pants and they were, they were leaving us, but they were buying denim from us. So, you know, we started running some tests. We tested some expanded sizes, which, which, which was really helpful um, because we were selling them in denim. So I knew that customer, you know, wanted pants as well. But then we started testing fits and different colors. And, you know, we were able to triple the business in like two, two years. So what takes you from, um, uh, what takes you from pants and you said women's and then I mean, what, what makes you think I need to, to start making uh, exercise clothing? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when I was living in Pittsburgh, I got, um, I was always, you know, not as a kid, as a kid, I wasn't super active. Actually, my parents used to have to force me to play sports. Um, but as an adult, I got more and more into working out. And when I lived in Pittsburgh, I was working out all the time um, with the trainer and doing different athletic activities. And I always kind of, I, I was always disappointed in, in the styling of the athletic apparel that I found in the marketplace. A lot of like very over-designed products with seams running in every direction, neon, and logos all over everything. So I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I thought, really would like to start my own athletic apparel company. You know, I thought a lot about it. I did some research and then things were going really well in American Eagle. And so, you know, I got this promotion and went in, went into women's. And after I'd been there for about four years and the opportunity to go back to the gap in New York came up, um, I got this great job. And so I took the opportunity. It turned out to be a really challenging year for me. And it just was not a good fit. And I left at the end of the year and I, you know, I was, was not in a great place. And I, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to look for another job, but maybe let's explore this idea of doing an athletic apparel company. So I was kind of simultaneously, you know, uh, looking at two different options and a good friend of mine, you know, he, he I was talking to him about it and he called me up and we were talking and he said, you know, you've always wanted to start your own company. He's like, you can always get another job, but I had I had gotten an offer from a great company, and he said, if you take the the offer, you're not going to ever start this company. And so, I made the decision that I was going to start the company. And in between ending at the Gap and starting the company, I had gone on a, a month long trip to Australia, New Zealand, which was really helpful in helping me kind of realize what I what I had wanted to do. Um, I came back and I did interview, like I said, but I, I, I made the choice to, to start four laps. So in like July of 2014, I started working on it full time. Do you think there was something that crystallized that on the Australia trip? Yeah, I mean, I think that travel for me, I've been to 63 countries and travel for me has always been something that's very eye opening. And I think that the the challenging experience of the gap combined with like some challenging things that were going on in my personal life 
I think I kind of came to the conclusion that it was time to stop doing what I thought I should be doing and start doing what I really wanted to do. So that that trip kind of helped me solidify that. And, you know, I came back and I did interview, but I was really leaning towards doing my own thing. And, you know, after speaking to my dad and some friends, I just decided that the time was right to to start the company. Well, then, uh, what's your what's your first step? Are you are you trying to figure out logos or ground zero? Yeah, I mean, listen. In the beginning, it's a lot of spinning. So you you kind of make lists of what you of what needs to be done. So I knew I needed to create a brand name and a brand identity. I knew I needed to create designs and source fabrics. I knew I needed to find someone to help me manufacture. I knew I needed, I was going to need a PR firm. So you start networking and you start working on it. And in the beginning, it's slow because you don't, you know, I didn't have, I'm not a designer. So I didn't have, I, 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 I had an idea of vision for the brand, but I needed someone to help me bring that vision to life. So I started networking, looking for designers. Then I, then I knew I needed to, you know, create a logo and a brand identity. So again, more networking, talking to different people. And, you know, I finally found a designer and she's, she was really great and we worked really well together and we, I, I told her what my vision was and she kind of helped bring that to life and it was a really collaborative process. I worked with this incredible uh, creative agency that helped me, you know, come up with the name and, um, you know, create the, the brand identity. And then, you know, once we had the designs, I was having a really hard time finding someone to, to make it. And, you know, I had a lot of connections in retail and reached out to a lot of people, but a lot of these factories, they don't want to work with someone who's doing small quantities. So, you know, I had a really hard time. And through through some networking, I found a production consultant and I met with her a couple times. And then I thought, you know, I want to see if I can try and do this myself. So I went to L.A., and met with a bunch of factories, and and I found that it was really hard. Some of the stuff that I was making was going to be really challenging to make in the U.S. for costing. So I, I came back to New York, and I asked to meet with this production consultant again, and she said, you know, you've met with me twice. You've called my references. If you want to meet with me again, I'm going to charge you for the time. And I thought, oh, that just doesn't sit well with me. But I met with her again. I, I signed a contract with her and we started working on trying to get this product produced. Where did you go first to get it produced? So was it was working with her kind of assuming that you would go overseas or were you still focused on yeah. family made in the US? She we basically decided that it was gonna have to be overseas based on my cost targets. And, you know, she had come highly recommended and and said she had all these connections to people and she could figure it out. So we started working together and there were things that were going wrong that I was just, I just, it didn't make sense to me. Like we're, we're making comments on things and the samples are coming back and you know, we're having fittings and the fittings are really expensive because you have a fit model and a fit technician. Well, we're coming back with these fittings and things just aren't right and they're not getting resolved. I, I remember the first time I got the running shorts in, we we hadn't sourced a liner for them yet, and they came in with a liner that was a woven material that had no give. 
So we had to cut them out of the garments to get them on the, the, the fit model. And I said to her, I said, are you sure they've made athletic apparel before? Yes, they're, they're experts in athletic apparel. They've totally made athletic apparel. And I thought, well, if they've made athletic apparel, why, why are they sending a running short with a woven liner and, and a drawstring that looks like something you'd find on a pajama? <laughs> and, you know, she assured me. Well, we kept going. And, and it was round after round, and things weren't getting better. And she was blaming my designer and my technician and all these different people. And it finally was like five months in, and I called her up, and I was talking to her, and she said, you don't trust me. And I said, I, I didn't say anything, but I thought, I, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. Hmm. So I, I asked her if we needed to go to this factory. Now, she had never been to this factory that she placed me in. And, and one of the things that is kind of 101 when it comes to production is you always place people in factories that you have relationships with that you know. And she said, no, but, you know, they come highly recommended. And I thought, you know what, I need to go to this factory. So I called her up and I said, have you been? And she said, no, I haven't been. And I said, well, do we need to go? No, we don't need to go. And I said, well, I'm going. And so I got on a plane, I went over there, and basically there were just all kinds of signs that, that it wasn't right. The first meeting I had with the owner of the factory and his sister, they told me that they specialize in button-down shirts, and did I know anyone that needed button-down shirts? And I thought, this is weird. I mean, I'm making athletic apparel. Why are they talking about button-down shirts? <laughs> well, Where was it, if, if you can if you can tell Yeah, sure. Us. The factory was... Um, this the factory was five hours outside of Shanghai, so three hour a three hour train ride and a two hour car ride, which which is a long it was a long way from Shanghai. Now we were meeting in Shanghai at the time because they had an office there, but we we I finally got to the factory and there's two things to look at when you get to a factory: what are they making and what have they made? And they had pajamas on the line, so they were making pajamas which is one of the more simple woven garments you can make. And their showroom was filled with things not resembling athletic apparel at all. I had a photo shoot a couple weeks later, so I had to leave with correct samples. So we worked with them, and we got samples. And I came back. I ended the relationship with the production person. I had the photo shoot, and I tried to salvage the order because the factory was sitting on dyed fabric. You know, they had all my trims and everything. And so I kept working with them on the fit and they just were ignoring all the comments. And I finally had to walk away and they said, we'll let you transfer your, your raw materials to a new factory. And they wanted some additional money and it was all complicated. And I found a new factory while I was over there that made athletic apparel. Well, they kept they they asked for us to uh, use a third party to transfer the raw materials, and my agent said, "Well, I've never heard of anyone doing that. Something must be weird." And a day before the transfer was supposed to happen, we had found out that they cut all of my patterns, all of my fabric into patterns I hadn't approved. And so, after a year of blood, sweat, and tears, all these problems, we had to, I had to start from scratch, and I lost everything.
And I basically had to start over with a new factory. So we had to go through everything again, all the trim approvals, all the color approvals, all the rounds of fits. Granted, when you do things a second time, you, you, you know, you're smarter. But I was devastated. And it set me back a year. Now you're at like summer of 2015. Correct. Wow. That was the, I went over there in the summer, and but it was months that went by of back and forth, and can we salvage this, and can we not, and the factory wasn't, the, the, the woman who was working at the factory, who was the sister of the owner, was, 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 she was crazy, and she wasn't responding. Weeks would go by where she wouldn't respond, and then she would respond to something that was crazy. I mean, it was just, and it was, you know, you're sitting, you're sitting, I'm sitting in New York while all this is going on, and it's just, it's maddening. When you can't control a situation, it just is maddening. Um, and, you know, ultimately, the inevitable happened. I lost everything, and I had to start start over. So, in addition to this being extremely time-consuming, it sounds very, very expensive, too. So, I mean, how how did you how did you manage that? Was this, like, the kind of thing where you're pouring your life savings into it, or did you do, like, a fundraising round, or how are you funding all yeah. of this? So, so, I was living off of my savings, which, you know, I, I lived, I worked for American Eagle, and I saved a lot of money living in Pittsburgh, and, you know, that afforded me, you know, money to live off of, and then... My dad, who is an entrepreneur as well, was funding the company. And he works in a business that's very cyclical, and he's been through a lot of ups and downs. And he's an incredible resource in terms of support and perspective. And so, you know, we, we lost a big chunk of money. And, I mean, he could have been furious with me, and he wasn't. He's like, look, this, these things happen, and, you know, you got to move this thing forward. And, you know, thank goodness, because if, if, if he had said no, then that would have been the end of it. Yeah. Now, maybe I would have found a way to, you know, keep it going and fund it, fund it another way. But, you know, he's, he's, a, he's been an incredible support and he's, he, you know, we have a really good relationship and, and he understands how business works and that, you know, bad things happen. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so when did things start to turn around? I guess. So basically, um, in December of 2015, I kind of got myself back into. I was kind of depressed after this whole thing happened, and I, I got myself into a better state, and uh, I started working on things again, and we redid everything, and I flew over to this factory a second time, and we worked with them, and. Um, you know, things were much, much more smooth because this factory, they, they, they had made product like this before. And ultimately, you can't work with a factory that has never made product that you're making. It's just, I mean, you can, but you're going to end up with really bad product. And you, you only have one chance to get it. You have more than one chance, but you want to get, to, you want to come to market with something you're proud of. And that, that product, if I had if I had allowed that factory to make it, it would have been a mess. It would have been an absolute mess. So, you know, we we got it, we we got it going, and 
um, you know, I, I, we had, we got it all together, and I ended shipped in July, and I launched in August of 2016. So it was, it was a year, basically a year after I had wanted to launch. Hmm. So you're able to take everything you learned uh, with the first one, uh, as far as your your fits, your materials, and just kind of. Uh, make this the second round a, a much smoother because because it sounds like things went pretty quick right you said you really started to get back on the groove in December of 15 and then you were out in public by the summer of 16 so I mean that's that sounds a yeah. lot quicker than uh, than the original time yeah I mean that that it was it's a lot quicker because you already have you know I had some samples to show so like we could kind of work a little bit off of those um, although the patterns were all messed up and you know, the, the old factory kept the pattern, so I wasn't able to start with those. I had, and I had to start from scratch. But anytime you do something the second time, it, it, it becomes a lot easier. Even back before you you were, it was when you were at the startup, before you went to the Gap, I think it was 03. Like, what do you think would have happened if you had tried to do this before going through the Gap and through American Eagle? I mean, I think that I just, I wouldn't have known what to do. Um and also, I had thought all along I would start a denim brand. Well, you know, the world has a lot of denim brands. So if I had done it in 03, I probably would have started a jeans company, which, I mean, I didn't have any experience. So the knowledge that I gained in the ten over 10 years that I worked in corporate retail definitely helped. Yeah. So you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have changed much from that perspective. No, I think so. I think that the knowledge, you know, the knowledge when I was in my early mid twenties to when I was in my late thirties, obviously, I learned so much in that time about me and who and what I wanted and who I was and all those things. So, you know, I think, and then and then just the experience of of working for another company and learning what things should look like. Like with this consultant, when I started seeing things that I just that just didn't make sense, like. I, I might not have known that if I hadn't ha had been in factories all over the world and had all these connections in, in retail. Yeah, I'd have no idea what to do if I landed in, in Shanghai to try and go build some clothes. So <laughs> definitely learnings there. Uh, so how have things gone since the launch? I mean, how? I mean, it's, it's I guess you're uh, like eight eight month mark now. Yeah. So things uh, things started off good and we had really good sales the first month and then and then things dropped off and we had a couple of slow months um, but you know in the beginning you're trying a lot of different things and so I worked with a publicist and I interviewed tons and tons of publicists and I found a really great publicist who understood my brand and understands me and your relationship with your publicist is really, really important. And a lot of people think it's a waste of money. But ultimately, when you're a new brand and no one's ever heard of you, you need to get press and you need you need to have endorsement from editors because editors in magazines have a lot of clout. They're kind of the arbiters of what is cool. And you need you can't just be running around uh, marketing yourself. It's, it's when you have the endorsement of someone else, it, it goes a long way. So, you know, she's working on getting me into some publications. And, you know, it takes time because it's a brand that no one's ever heard of. Now, I had a good background in terms of having worked in the industry. 
and you know the product looks great but again you know it's a lot of hard work so I have a publicist that's working on helping me get press I started working with a digital agency on uh, search engine marketing and search engine optimization and you know we were having very little luck with paid search because ultimately if someone's going to do a search we're not going to be able to bid against one of the big athletic apparel companies so that wasn't working so well I worked on we worked on um, marketing through email so we're trying we're trying all of that so we're trying a bunch of different things and and nothing's working particularly well but I'm starting to get press and I'm getting people are writing about me and then through people writing about me other people are hearing about me and we're sending out um, we're sending out product to tastemakers and people in the in the athletic space and we're um, we're just trying a bunch of different things and I think you know one of the big big things that happened was that um, GQ is, is a is a magazine that I've read forever and I really feel like they're the gold standard um, you know they're one of the gold standards when it comes to men's fashion and if not the gold standard and uh, so I really had wanted to show them my product so we showed them my product um, before we launched and um, my publicist was following up with them and and in December you know in, in uh, November they pulled some stuff for a photo shoot which is great um, and in December you know they asked for a credit check which is good and but ultimately you never know if something's gonna get into a magazine until it goes to print and lo and behold uh, they ran a story um, in January in the January edition and uh, the story was about this guy named Pietro Boselli who's a who's a was a math professor who's now a model he has a PhD in engineering but he's he's unbelievably fit and so the story was about him and the last page of the story was a full page with just him wearing my shirt and uh, and, a, and a quote saying that four laps was was their new favorite brand and literally the day it came out the orders just started growing you know since then things have been things have been definitely moving forward I mean it's it's still a struggle all the time and it's very hard but I think you have to have forward momentum and you know we have forward momentum we have we're getting good feedback from the customers they like the product you know the GQ article is opened up a lot of doors because they they hold a lot of weight and people listen to them so you know people who read the magazine listen to them and you know uh, people in the industry listen to them wow that's awesome hey you're uh, I, I was just looking through your inventory and um, your start before you're ready tagline really hits home after hearing your story <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's a it's it's part of the brand um, and you know basically obviously the brand is 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 a personal journey um, but it's that tagline resonates with a lot of people and you know if you wait for the perfect moment to do something it will not present itself you have to take the initiative like what advice would you give to people especially people who don't have a background in the fashion industry which I think a lot of people these days who want to start something 
um, you know, maybe a men's accessories company or just something like that, and who don't have any experience, you know, it seems like it is doable these days. The barrier of entry is, is much lower than it used to be. But what would you tell people who want to create something, um, but who don't have much experience and you know, might have a little bit of money, but not a ton of money. Um, what advice would you give? I mean, I think you have to. I think you have to do what you're good at, and I think you need to hire people to do what you're not good at. And so, I think you need to know what your strengths are and know what your opportunities are. And I think if you're going to do a startup, you have to love the everyday challenge of getting up and solving problems. And 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 you're going to hit roadblocks, and it's it's how how much perseverance do you have? How many times can you get knocked down and get back up? Now, it's not all bad, but ultimately, it's hard. And so you just have to be prepared that it's just not easy. And ultimately, you know, being persistent is definitely, it definitely pays off. I mean, I could have quit after that first round was a disaster, but I believed in what I was doing. And, you know, I had the support of my dad and other people in my life. And ultimately, like, you just have to kind of keep going. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I would love to talk more offline or just just another time about about this stuff. I mean, it's from the clothing manufacturing to the, the marketing side of things. That's uh, just all very, very fascinating. So, yeah, I'm really, yeah. really impressed with what you've done so far. Yeah, Thank we'll you very much. back as you uh, as you continue to grow here. <laughs> I, I was reading it. I would things too. You were saying, uh, you know, additional products. I mean, you've got some really good. You know, your your bolt short and some of the other stuff right out of the gate. And I know you're working on some some future stuff. I don't know if you're if you're ready to announce. Yeah, no. So um, I'm working on a bunch of new things. Um, I'm working on some iterations of what I currently have. I'm working on some products that are that are natural fibers. I'm really into the idea of using more natural fibers because they actually can be better than the synthetics. It's better for the environment and it's also, it's just better all around. And, you know, I'm having some conversations over the next couple of weeks that I think will lead to some, some, some good things. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to offer a million things. I want to offer a curated assortment of things that people really need. And so I want to keep it tight, but I definitely think there's opportunity to, to offer some additional products. Amazing. Well, this is uh, this has been fascinating to me, and I would definitely like to let people know how you're doing as you as you continue to grow here. I think this might be our, our longest interview so far, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So uh, people can check you out at fourlaps.com, and uh, they can they can Google your name and, and find you out there, Daniel Shapiro, uh, St. Louis native. Any any uh, parting words as we sign off here? <laughs> no, I think we've covered it. But uh, we'll definitely we'll definitely keep in touch. Absolutely. Well, well thanks for getting on here, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, okay, Dan. Thank you for listening to Buttoned Up, a podcast project by Brock McGoth of The Modest Man and John Shanahan of The Cavalier, and we will see you next week.